Rackhouse Ramblings, episode number 25, take one. All right, I'm Jeff. This is Rackhouse Ramblings, episode number 25. We're going to get it started right now, the fifth episode of the second season. Um, today's podcast has some, uh, some cool segments. Uh, during the week, I got some feedback from a few listeners, and I really like hearing from you guys. So based on that, one of the segments is going to be uh, an update on my archery season so far. No deer in the freezer, but some cool adventures. Um, I spent uh, quite a bit of time in the woods, and I'll uh, tell you guys about it. Uh, also going to talk about a picture I posted on Instagram uh, about some, uh, it's my collection of animal skulls. <laughs> I keep them on display at the cabin. They're pretty cool. And I think you guys will like it too. Uh, going to have a segment on uh, meat, Wagyu beef, this Japanese crazy beef. Ever heard of it? Well, we're going to do a deep dive and talk about it. Um, also going to talk about some bourbon. And uh, also, you know what, uh, before I forget, last uh, couple nights ago was um, Halloween night. And we did something a little different this year. So because of the uh, coronavirus and precautions and all that, they, you're, I guess you're not supposed to hand candy directly to people, right? And you're supposed to maintain distance and all that sort of thing. So Ann and I came up with something different this year. We put a table at the end of the driveway, um, just a small table, and put a tablecloth on it. And what we did was uh, we were passing out full-size candy bars this year. No shit. Big full-size candy bar, Snickers, Milky Ways. Uh, M&M's, Peanut, Twix, Reese's, all this stuff, right? So what I did, um, came up with like a, a little display board and what I wrote on it, I said four prizes, four boxes. And, um, I hot melted, uh, some things onto the board and put prize. I said the word prize right above it. So one prize was a couple of pencils. One prize was, I called it dental care kit. And it was uh, a toothbrush, toothpaste, and floss. It's that little kit you get from the dentist when you get your teeth clean. Then another prize was 31 cents. It was a quarter, a nickel, and a penny. And then the other prize said candy. And I glued some uh, little Twix bars and a Snickers bar, the little snack size, on the board. So I had the words four, four boxes, four prizes, and here are the four prizes. So on the table, going side to side, were four boxes. And what I did is took some boxes and cut the bottoms off and we put a gift rack on them so you couldn't see what was under them. So every kid that came up to our driveway, I said, step right up, come on here and check this out. I said, I have four prizes, look on my board, pencil and dental care and a candy and 31 cents. I have four boxes, so you have to pick a box. And what the kids didn't know is that under the box, under each box was a candy bar. So no matter what they picked, they would get a candy bar. And um, so it was funny to see how much thought they would put into it because all the boxes were different sizes. And then, so if there was more than one kid, the first kid would pick a candy bar and I'd say, oh, great choice, great choice. Now the second kid would come up and I said, well, you know what's left, right? So just go ahead and pick one. And then they'd be all uh, a little bit of bummed out, you could see, and then they'd pick one and get a full-size candy bar. And the routine was I'd turn around and go to Ann. I said, hey, what happened here? You set this up. And so it was all, they were surprised. And so if we had three or four or five kids, they would all figure it out. Said, oh, there was candy under all of them. But uh, I'll, I'll throw a picture under my uh, Rackhouse Ramway Instagram. It was We had a lot, a lot of fun with it. We had 90 candy bars that we had bought, and we went through 74, I think it was. So it was a fun night. We started, uh, we were out there about 545, and sure enough, the kids started rolling up just a few minutes later, and I think we ended about 730. So that, that was fun. That was a fun Halloween. So anyway, uh, episode number 25, we're going to drink some bourbon. We're going to talk about some stuff and uh, we'll be right back. Stay right there. 
back, episode 25. Um, one of the new things I'm doing this season is putting my uh, uh, bourbon spotlight right up front. And that's what I'm going to do right here, right now. We're going to roll right into the bourbon spotlight. Um, and I guess I want to do, I'm gonna probably, we're going to emphasize uh, uh, more bourbon, more sipping, more talking about enjoying what's in the bottle and stuff like that. So uh, for this, uh, this episode, I want to do, and we've done it before, I'm going to call it the Battle of the Single Barrels. Um, I'm going to sip side by side three single barrel bourbons. Um, and I pick three that I really like. Uh, one of my new favorites is Baker's Bourbon. I featured this one on the last episode. And another one of my new favorites is the Neely Family Distillery Single Barrel. And that's the one that I uh, bottled right there at their uh, distillery uh, on my last trip down to Kentucky. And then one of my uh, recurring go-to favorites is Evan Williams Single Barrel. So we're going to sip all three of those. We're going to talk about them. Then we're going to roll right into the podcast. And I got to tell you, going on the distillery tours, uh, it's kind of skewed my palate, I guess. <laughs> um, when I sip a bourbon, and it's if it's from a tour that I've been on, the funny thing is, it kind of takes me right back to the tour, right back to the day, the moment, or whatever, and I kind of relive that experience in my head. Um, I like that. It's kind of cool. Every time I sip it, uh, it kind of reminds me of uh, where I was at and how it went. Um, and if you haven't done a tour or anything like that, um, I'll try and put it into words. So the first bourbon tour I ever went on was the Evan Williams experience in downtown Louisville. Um, the tour guide was really personable, friendly, told the whole Evan Williams story. He had all these fancy words to describe adjectives and all that, um, the, the taste and the finish. And so every time I sip Evan Williams single barrel, it takes me back to that moment. Ann and I were there for the first time learning about bourbon, our first tour and all that. We we're in this tasting room in downtown Louisville. It was really, really cool. So when I sip it, that's what it reminds me of. And the same with, um, so the Neely family uh, distillery, their bourbon. When I pull the cork and I smell the aroma, I'm right back there. We're sitting in this gift shop. I can smell the grains. I can smell the mash. I can smell like the whole wood interior. Um, and I can kind of hear in my head that Southern drawl from the tour guide telling us all about the Neely family story. And it sounds crazy, but sometimes I think like our, our senses uh, are more like, um, think of them like light switches. And for me, the more senses I can turn on, the more I enjoy the experience, whether it be fly fishing or uh, bow hunting or whatever, just being outside. Um, the more senses that are, are being used or turned on, the more I enjoy whatever I'm doing, right? And maybe that's why I enjoy bourbon so much. If, if you think about it, so like start with the bottle. And some of these bottles are just so damn pretty, I don't have the heart to, <laughs> to throw them away uh, when you hold them out, the shapes. To me, it's kind of they're kind of like art, I guess. And then when you look inside, you see all these different shades of of the straw color, that brown, that liquid. Um, I guess straw is a good way to describe it. But none of them are the same. So while I'm doing this podcast, I'm looking directly across from me is a couple of shelves, and they're all full of bourbon. And not one of them is the same color. Some are darker, some are lighter, um, and that's part of the appeal. Then when you pop the cap or you take the cork off and you smell it, it's like man. The bourbon, uh, the smell is so different, so unique, whether you get like vanilla or nutmeg or wood or, and, you know, of course you get a little bit of alcohol too, but that's to me as part of the whole appeal. And, you know, you kind of roll right into the taste and you get sweet, you get spicy, you get woodsy, you get fruity, whatever in the finish. When you swallow it, you take that sip and throw it back, it kind of warms all the way down. It's not burning or anything like that, but that warm Kentucky hug, they call it. 
And it sometimes it even <laughs> makes your cheeks a little bit rosy or pink or whatever. And I hope I'm painting a picture right because that's the idea. Whether it's sight, it's smell, it's taste, um, feel, all that kind of all rolls into one. And that to me, that's the bourbon experience. So anyway, I'm, I'm getting sidetracked right here. So here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going to open uh, three bottles, pour three sips, uh, take a little bit of each one, and then we're going to continue right on with the podcast. First one I'm going to open is the uh, Evan Williams Single Barrel. This is a 2012. And like I've said before, this is one of my favorites. It's a go-to. And I'm pouring probably about half a shot. If you were sitting next to me here, you'd see about a half a shot. Next one I'm going to pour is the uh, Baker's Single Barrel 107 Proof. And that's a seven-year. This is one of my new favorites. I really like this one. Here, and we're going to pour, like I said, about half a shot. And then my other new favorite is the Neely Family Distillery. And this is the fun one that I was able to uh, bottle myself right out of the barrel and label it and everything. And that's pretty cool, too. Same thing, about half a shot. And the neat thing is they're all bourbons. They all, you know, 51% uh, corn, blah, blah, blah. We all know the story. But they each have their own little character to them. So I'm going to start with the Evan Williams Single Barrel. This one is 86.6 uh, proof. And it goes back so, so smooth. So smooth. I really like that one. If you're ever in Meyer, you're ever in Kroger, whatever, to me, I think that's one of the best values. It's $27, $28. Then the next one we're going to sip is the Baker's Single Barrel. That's a 107 proof. And this one smells so mild to me. But when I look at the colors, the Baker's is actually darker than the other two. So this is a 2013 it's labeled on here. So the Evan Williams was 2012, Baker's 2013. And that one is a little bit more vibrant, a little bit more alive, a little bit uh, more on the front of my tongue than the Evan Williams. And the last one we're going to sip is the Neely Family Distillery. Uh, bourbon single barrel. This one is a 103.6 proof. And this is, I think, 28 months. 18 and three months. Yeah, 27 months. How's that? So that's considered a young bourbon. We'll take a sip of that. Ooh, and to me, that one's more um, sweet, more bright, more fruity. Um, and it's the lightest in color out of all three. So there you have it, Battle of the Single Barrels. I love all three of them, and they each have their own different taste. I could, I, I'll sip each one of these as we continue on with the uh, podcast. And that's, I guess that's the whole part of it, right? We're going to enjoy it. We're going to talk. We're going to spend some time together. So I'm going to roll right in to my next segment. It's kind of my archery update, I guess, is what I called it. Um, since the last podcast, I've spent some time in the woods. And last week, I was invited um, out to my buddy uh, Gary's hunting lease property. Um, it's pretty cool. It's a great piece of, uh, it's a farm just outside of uh, Tecumseh. And Tecumseh, in case you don't know, is in Lenaway County. And this is about 30 minutes southwest of Ann Arbor. If you pulled out Google Maps, looked at Ann Arbor, kind of drew a line down to the left diagonal, you'd run into uh, Tecumseh. So Gary and I went out for a morning hunt. Um, which means <laughs> I had to get up at 4.30, <laughs> go to Gary's and be there by 6 a.m. And he lives in Milan. 
So by 6.30, uh, <laughs> uh, we were parking the truck, and uh, his truck, I should say. 6am went to Gary's. By 6.30, him and I were uh, parking at the edge of an alfalfa field, and it was still dark. And we took our bows out of the cases, and, you know, Gary's giving me the pregame pep talk, you know, and telling me the rules that, you know, um, bucks with antlers are fair game, but does and everything else, we let them pass. And um, we're going to sit till 10 a.m. that morning and meet back at the truck. And I said, okay, great. And Gary asked if I used Onyx. And it's, this is an app that we use as hunters. It's a map uh, slash GPS app, right? And uh, think of it like Google Earth for outdoors people. It's more specific. It shows property lines and things like that. And we can send uh, locations back and forth to each other. I said, hell yeah. Then, uh, you know, I reach in my pocket and no phone. And I was like, oh shit, I left my phone back in the truck, back in Milan, right, where Gary lives. And I'll be honest, it was a really weird feeling. Right out of the gate, I felt like an anxiety, like a stress or something, because I had no phone. Like, what the hell? <laughs> um, Gary was going to use the app to kind of show me where I'd be sitting that morning. Um, we're standing at this farm field in the dark. I've not, I hadn't been there. I was there once last year, if I remember right. And he's going to try and verbally tell me which way to go in the darkness, right? So uh, he has two tree stands hanging at the far edge of the alfalfa field. And um, since we'd be walking in the dark, he couldn't really tell me any landmarks or anything, right? So in my head, um, I'm more worried about keeping myself busy while I'm sitting there. Um, rather than, you know, getting there, it doesn't seem like such a big deal for me, but it's what am I going to do when I get there, right? It's It was the strangest, strangest feeling, hard to describe. So... Um, when I'm sitting out there in the tree stand, I use my phone to help keep me busy. It helps keep me occupied, um, helps keep me from getting bored. So I'm able to sit up there for hours at a time, right? I sit out there and I'll surf like Google News or Instagram or play Sudoku or whatever. And it just helps me pass the time. It, I, it's like a crutch, I guess, right? And now there's no crutch. And that was my worry. He's like, in my head, I said, you know what? You're here. Let's do it. Just be in the moment, uh, not in your phone. Um, and he said, okay, well, just meet me back here at 10. And then I realized I wasn't wearing my watch. I remember in the morning I said, I don't need a watch. I have my phone, right? Duh. But anyway, so now I'm kind of double weirded out. So we agreed. Gary would come back and get me at 10 a.m. Fair enough. I said, okay. So Gary points his, his hand straight out into the darkness and says, walk that way. The tree stand has like a, a rope hanging and it's uh, reflective. So you can pull your bow up to the stand. He said that rope's reflective. When you get over there, you'll see it reflecting. And I'm used to that. I've done that before. Um, and he goes, there's a second tree stand further left, you know, 70, 80 yards to the left. Don't sit in that one. He'll go to the one on the right. So off I went walking through this alfalfa field and he goes his way towards the right and into the darkness. And I have my little headlamp on and it, it probably, it wasn't a long walk, maybe 10 minutes or so. I don't know if that's what, like quarter mile or something like that. And the farm field wasn't really flat. It's kind of like a rolling landscape. And as I'm walking, I, I kind of walk uphill and I wouldn't call it a hill, maybe like a crest, right? So as I reach that crest, my headlamp um, shines over and I can see the reflective rope off in the distance. Cool. And it was a lot brighter than I thought it would be. Um, think it was funny. I guess if I wanted to describe it, it looks like this giant straw that was lit up sticking out in the middle of a, a of no out of the darkness, right? So I make my way there, get all the way over there. Um, and this tree stand where I'd be sitting in is kind of set back off of the alfalfa about 10 yards, really close. So you can kind of see the field, but you're still sitting in this hardwoods and these oaks, right? And I climb up and I can see I'm kind of overlooking. And by now it's just starting to get a little bit light. 
and I can see the outline of the trees on the horizon. It was really, really cool. Morning like that, the sunrise is always favorite for me. So I hook up my safety harness and I climbed up and get settled in. And um, it's funny, at sunrise, everything wakes up, the birds and the wind and the sky. And it's it's if you've never done it, you should try it once. It's pretty cool. Uh, so maybe after an hour or so, maybe more, I don't know. I didn't have a watch, right? But I hear um, a bunch of crackling leaves, like someone walking on potato chips, right? And it's coming through the woods behind me. And I'm convinced it was like a, a bunch of squirrels running through because that's all I've been seeing all morning, these little squirrels running around the oaks, right? And that's what I've been seeing and hearing. So in my head, I'm like, these damn squirrels. Um, and it was like, it gets a little bit annoying after a while. But I turn and I said, oh, but this time it was a deer, right? And there actually there's two of them. There are two does walking right to me. Um, one was bigger, one was smaller. And the smaller one ended up walking right underneath me. And I guess if I had my, I'm thinking in my head, boy, if I had my phone, it'd be pretty cool to take a picture, right? So don't, don't worry. In my head, I'm having this conversation with myself, right? So the deer's feeding. It's right at the bottom of my ladder steps, right? At, right. I could have jumped down on it and I could see it was a little button buck, had little nubs on its head. And he probably stayed there for 20 minutes, maybe more, just walking around. It was a really cool feeling. Um, it's like a small victory for, for a bow hunter because you didn't smell me. You didn't see me. And it kind of validates that everything I was doing is right, like the right place, the right time, the right stand, the right gear, all those sorts of things. And eventually the two deer graze away and I'm sitting there kind of looking around and um, they kind of paralleled the alfalfa field but stayed in the, the hardwood. So they kind of walk away and I saw them pop out into the field maybe 75, 80 yards away um, towards that other tree stand that uh, Gary was telling me about. And I can see this through my binoculars, they kind of pop out and then a couple more deer popped out into the field, but these two were bucks and one was a four point. You could see like the antler and it goes into a fork you'd call it. And uh, the other, I think was a six point. It had like a, a cool basket shaped rack and they started to spar back and forth. And it was really something to see because I'd never seen it um, only on TV, only on a video and things like that. And they were far enough away. I couldn't hear them, but I could see them rustling back and forth. I could see uh, the, they were kind of in the dirt there going back, pushing each other back and forth. It was really cool. Probably went on 20 minutes, maybe longer or whatever. And, um, I remember Gary saying, Hey, there's another tree stand over there. So I waited a while and decided I'm going to go over there. You know, once those deer went away, they all walked back into the woods. I, I in my head, I said, you know what? I want to be over there. Cause I bet you I could get a shot at one of them. So real quiet, like I snuck down, made my way through the hardwoods and found the tree stand. I made sure, you know, I try not step any twigs and be all quiet and everything and uh, got over there, climbed up, settled in. And I could see over to the right, the ground was tore up where the, the two bucks were sparring. So I got my little range finder and range it. And it's like 30, 35 yards, like right in my wheelhouse. And I'm thinking, cool, I'm ready. Next time these two bucks, if they're around, they're going to come back. I'm going to be ready. And in my head, I'm like patting myself on the back. I got over there nice and quiet, found the stand and everything. And thinking I'm I'm ready to go, right? So put the rangefinder away, look over to my left, and what do I see? I can see the biggest fucking buck of my life standing right in front of the tree stand that I just left. No shit. <laughs> it was like picture perfect. I could see this beautiful body and this giant rack. I didn't even need monoculars to see how huge these antlers were. And right like in my head, I'm going, fuck. I, I, if I was sitting there, this would be a 10 yard shot. I pull out my binoculars, look, and I'm thinking 
there's the buck. Look just above him. There's the tree stand I just came from. Like, gosh darn it. <laughs> if I would have stayed <laughs> another 10 minutes, that's story of my life, right? No patience, always trying to do better, always looking for, for the next best thing. Always, the grass is always greener somewhere else. So I sat there and I watched him and I can see, see him like tip his head in the air and kind of smell. And I'm pretty sure he was trying to find the doe that had walked by earlier. So I tried my deer call, my rattle. I tried praying, making deals with God, whatever I could to get that buck to walk my way, but it just didn't happen. He just <laughs> disappeared into the woods and right out of my life, man. <laughs> so I'm sitting there motherfucking myself thinking, damn it, damn it. Must have said it a hundred times. And probably maybe 20 minutes go by and I can see someone walking through the field. And it was Gary and he's coming my way. And, I, and it was 10 o'clock already. The morning flew by. And you know what? I survived the morning without a phone, without a watch. Um, I saw a deer. Um, I, had, I had action. To me, it was a great morning. I, and so as Gary walks over, I said, hey, did you see that buck? You know, this thing was huge. And, and nope, he didn't see it. And uh, so we walked back through the, the field of the truck. And I was talking about, you know, all the what ifs and how cool it would have been. And what could it, you know, the story and everything. Wouldn't it be cool for dragging out a deer and, you know, and then even when I'm driving back to Northville, you know, after Gary and I uh, get back to his place, I jump in my truck and start heading home. But, you know, I just kept reminding, reminding myself, really, you know, once again here, I saw a deer, got to hang out with my, my best buds. I didn't get the trophy buck, but I guess I got the next best thing, right? The experience. That's, that's more than half of it, I think. It's kind of like, I, but while I was typing up this script, I, I think it was more like... Um, I consider it like my mental venison jerky, right? Without the expiration date, I get to tell this story over and over and over. It never goes away, and I get to 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 keep that. So I thought that was pretty cool. Anyway, so saw a deer. It was cool. Had a great time. Went home, kind of kicked myself in the butt. But you know what? It was pretty neat, and I, and I get to tell you guys about it. So let me – my mouth is getting dry. Let me take another sip. This is the Evan Williams uh, single barrel, and – this is kind of cool, right? We're going to sip some bourbon. We're going to talk, uh, keep rolling with the podcast. Hmm. That was a little bit more than a sip. That was the rest of that uh, half a shot. So anyway, uh, last week I went up to my cabin, spent uh, three days up there, and um, that was a solo event. Uh, the first evening I sat in, uh, I behind my cabin is a Huron National Forest. So what I get to do is, um, get dressed, open my back door, walk to the top of the hill, and I have thousands of acres of um, federal land right behind me. And that's the reason I have this property. I absolutely love it. To me, it's like my little uh, treasure getaway. So the first evening I go back there, and the federal land uh, directly behind my property is made up of uh, pine trees planted in rows. And it's really neat. Think of like a, a cornfield, but with pine trees. So you can see down the rows and everything, and they're all nice and straight, so I can put my climber up in there. And it's not even maybe a quarter mile, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, right out the back door. And so I sit in one of my favorite spots back in the National Forest. It was cold, it was windy, and this one stand that I'm, uh, or one tree that I'm in um, overlooks a nice heavily used deer trail. And for where I'm sitting looking down, the trail almost looks like a tunnel through this small little swamp. Um, so I sat there. Uh, nothing was really moving. The clouds were rolling in. And after an hour, I had to come down because rain came in, soaked me and all my clothes and all my shit. So called it a night. Uh, the next morning, I sat in a tree 
uh, right in the front of my property. And it overlooks a uh, food plot. And this year, I wasn't able to plant the food, food plot. Usually, I do it in April. But because of the COVID uh, lockdown and all that, I wasn't able to touch any of it uh, till boy, July or August, something like that. So really, there was nothing planted there. I just kind of mowed it. But over this particular food plot, I've probably killed almost, I was trying to think in my head, it might be almost half a dozen, five or six, something like that, that I shot out of this particular food plot. So I sit there in the morning, and it's a beautiful spot for sunrise because the sun comes up from behind me, um, kind of lights up all the field and everything. Um, had a great morning, but didn't see anything. But that was okay. Um, later that day, I went for a hike back in the National Forest. And so if I go back there through the the rows of pine trees, there's a swamp in the middle and it kind of all slopes down to the swamp. And I like to make a lap, like a loop all the way around it. And if I was to guesstimate this swamp and all these pines are probably about 80 acres, that would be about right. You know, looking at it from Google maps. And once you go beyond the pines, it turns into hardwoods. So there's a mix of everything back there. And I spend a whole lot of time back there. Um, normally I'd see like fresh deer scat. I might see some rubs, some scrapes, but nothing as of yet. So this was as of three or four days ago. Um, not sure about you guys, but I have not seen any signs of rut activity uh, at all this year. Maybe it's running late. I don't know. Spent the next evening and morning in the same spots and saw nothing, ended up coming home. So no deer in the freezer, nothing like that. So I'm just kind of uh, buying my time, getting everything prepared and ready uh, for next week. Uh, so the week before the week leading up to the, uh, rifle season opener, which is the 15th, I'll be, uh, at my place with bow in hand and I'll try and report back to you guys, uh, with hopefully with, uh, with some exciting news, but we'll see. But before I forget when I'm up at my cabin and I do these walks through the woods and things every, seems like most every spring as I'm walking around, I'll find like a pile of bones. Or I find a pile of feathers or a pile of pile of fur and there'll be a skull in there and I'll pull that skull out and clean it up and hang it up. <laughs> I guess hang it up, set it on the shelf. And I didn't uh, realize that I start, I've probably got five or six different skulls now I've got uh, displayed around my cabin. So I took a picture and sent it to a few people. I'll, I'll put it up on the Instagram, but you'll see going from left to right, they go uh, a deer skull, a coyote skull, um, one with this big buck teeth ends up being that's a porcupine skull. And then the next two, uh, I think the next one is a possum, and I think the last one is a raccoon. And if anyone can tell me for sure otherwise, feel free to send me an email. But that's some of my uh, collection of skulls. I think I have one or two more that aren't even uh, on display there. But that was my skull collection. So anyway, we're going to take another sip of bourbon and talk about uh, Wagyu beef. So this next one is the Baker's seven-year uh, single barrel, another new favorite of mine. Mm. So, so, so smooth. I like that one. Okay, so um, here's what happens. Uh, recently in the mail, I received a holiday little um, brochure, flyer, catalog, or whatever you call it, from Costco. And it has all kinds of cool gift ideas in it. And as I'm thumbing through, I stopped at this one page, and it was like, uh, dedicated to meat, right? Um, <laughs> I'm a carnivore, so I stopped right in my tracks, right? So they have ham, they have duck breast, they have Angus beef, all this really expensive stuff. And they have this stuff called Wagyu beef. And if you're not sure, Wagyu is, it's, I don't I hope I'm pronouncing it right. It's W-A-G-Y-U. And it's Japanese, right? Uh, I think the way or WA is 
Japanese and the goo is beef, if you were to translate it from what I can see. But anyway, um, this is expensive stuff. Like everything on the page is expensive. It's meant to be gifts, right? But when I say expensive, this is ungodly expensive. So they have an 11 pound roast made up of strip loin. So you'd cut it into steaks, right? For $999. No shit, $1,000 for this 11 pound roast, right? That's $90.81 a pound. Oh, and did I mention there's a limit? You can only buy 15, right? That, that's classic Costco stuff. But um, they also had boneless ribeye roast. It was a 12-pounder for $999. Holy shit. But really, that's the better deal because it's $83.25 a pound. <laughs> Just a little bit cheaper. But anyway, they're both $999. You have to order them online. So I've never tried one. As a matter of fact, I, could, I don't even know anyone that's ever tried a Wagyu steak, right? Um, so I decided to do like this deep dive. And of course, you go on the internet, you start to Google, put in Wagyu beef. And uh, I, I, I actually, I, my search was, why is Wagyu beef so pricey, right? So I started at www.wagyu.org. It's W-A-G-Y-U. And this is the website for American, the American Wagyu Association. <laughs> and I'm going to, I'll try and paraphrase, but I'll, I might read a bunch of it like verbatim. I cut and pasted it. So um, Wagyu is a Japanese beef cattle breed derived from native Asian cattle. And Wagyu refers to all Japanese beef cattle where the way or way mean, uh, means Japanese and the goo means cow. Okay. So maybe I got it mixed up a little bit, but Wagyu were originally draft animals used in agriculture and were selected for their physical endurance. The selection favored animals with more intramuscular fat cells, which means marbling to you and me, <laughs> um, which provided a readily available energy source. So Wagyu is an honored breed and the cattle are either black or red in color. Um, I continued on on their website. This is con- uh, the breed history in Japan. Um, there's some evidence of genetic separation into the Wagyu genetic strain as much as 35,000 years ago. Modern Wagyu cattle are the result of crossing of the native cattle in Japan with imported breeds. So crossing began in 1868. After the Meiji Maijai restoration in that year, the government wanted to introduce Western food habits and, and uh, culture. Brown Swiss, Devon, Short, Horn, Cemental, Irishire, and Korean cattle were all imported during this period. The infusions of these British, European, and Asian breeds were closed to outside genetic infusions in 1910. The variation of confirmation within the Wagyu breed is greater than the variation across British and European breeds. The three major black strains are Tajiri, Tajima, uh, Fujiyoshi, and Kedaka. I'm, I'm sure I'm like slaughtering this pronunciations here, but bear with me. Um, they evolved due to regional geographic isolation in Japan. These breeding differences have produced a Japanese national herd that comprises 90% black cattle with the remainder uh, being red. Uh, and the red strains are called Kochi and Kumamoto. So for more information, click here. You can go to their website, like I was saying. Um, in Japan, there are four breeds that are considered Wagyu, and those are Japanese Black, um, Japanese Brown, Japanese Polled, and Japanese Shorthorn. There are no Japanese Polled or Shorthorns being bred outside of Japan. Hmm. Wagyu strains were isolated according to prefecture 
which is state, and breeds imported for crossing were not the same in each prefecture. The production of Wagyu beef in Japan is highly regulated, and progeny progeny testing is mandatory. Only the very best proven genetics are kept for breeding. Realizing the value of their unique product, the Japanese government banned the export of Wagyu and declared them a national living treasure. Zenwa is the government-held entity in Japan that oversees Wagyu registry for Japanese black, brown, pulled, and shorthorn beef. Hmm. Very interesting. And then it goes on to say, The unique taste and tenderness of highly marbled Wagyu beef makes for an unrivaled eating experience. That is why Wagyu beef is finding its way into the repertoires of gourmet cooks and fine restaurants across the U.S. Not only is it a gastronomic delight, wow, but it's healthy for you too. Health experts have discovered the monounsaturated to saturated fat ratio is higher in Wagyu than in other beef. And saturated fat contained in Wagyu is different. 40% is in a version called stearic acid, which is regarded as having minimal impact in raising cholesterol levels. The profile of marbled Wagyu beef is more beneficial and healthier to human health. Hmm. Wagyu is also higher in a type of fatty acid called conjunctated lineic acid, CLA for short. Wagyu beef contain the highest amount of CLA per gram of food stuff, about 30% more than other beef breeds, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So I went to another webpage called www.furiousgrill.com, and it was the same question, why is Wagyu beef so expensive? I wanted to know. Um, and I'll read this little quote for you. If you've ever checked the prices online, you notice that Wagyu cuts are very expensive, usually more than $100 per cut. One of the main reasons Wagyu beef is so expensive is that there is uh, put so much effort into um, effort to work and grow the produce uh, and produce the final beef. When compared with the other common beefs, there is a huge difference between the selection, care, and feeding of Wagyu breeders towards cattle. Uh, They create special feeds out of grasses, forage, rice, uh, which makes a huge difference in the end. All the special breeding and effort makes the beef uh, high in marbling. The fat present in Wagyu cuts is more easily melted at lower cooking temperatures when compared with other cuts, giving it a more rich, buttery flavor. Ooh, also the fat in Wagyu beef is unsaturated and rich in omega-3s and omega-6 fatty acids, which is more healthy. Um, and then the same question, I found an answer at uh, www.tasteofhome.com. In 1997, Japan declared Wagyu a national treasure and banned any further exportation, which means they largely control the market on Wagyu beef. American ranchers are working hard to increase the production of this sought-after beef, but only 221 animals were exported to the United States before the ban was in place. That's a small pool producing a uh, small pool considering that Japan uses progeny testing to ensure only the best genetics are kept for breeding. Breeding. So there you have it. More than you ever wanted to know about Wagyu beef. Uh, I guess, you know, what I want to do here is is throw out a little proposition uh, to you guys, my listeners. <laughs> Stand by. That was another sip. <clears throat> if there is someone out there interested in sponsoring a Wagyu beef tasting, please contact me at rackhouserambling at gmail.com. And this is no joke. This is serious shit. I would like to do a tasting. Um, what I have found is at Costco for 120 bucks, I can get a couple of 
uh, Wagyu beef steaks. And here's what I'm proposing. I'll host, I'll cook, I'll do all that stuff. I'll pair it up with some uh, uh, side dishes and even do a pairing up with some bourbon. I've got some good top shelf bourbon here. Um, so if you're interesting, interested and you're interesting, you better be able to hold a conversation. Uh, if you're interested in doing a Wagyu tasting with yours truly, uh, of course, I, we do a podcast while we're at it. Um, give me a shout out. Let's nail this down. I think it would be kind of fun. Um, we'll pair some bourbon. We'll pair some food. Have a nice evening. If you want to bring a significant other with you, a spouse, friend, whatever, that's fine too. Um, I'll take good care of you guys. So there you have it. Um, I'm going to wrap up episode 25 with one last sip. I have a little bit left of the Neely's uh, single barrel. I think the uh, bourbon spotlight at the front end of the podcast is a really good idea. Keeps uh, the bourbon theme throughout the whole podcast. So I'll try and be back next week with uh, some more archery update, some more interesting stuff to talk about. Uh, You guys be safe, and uh, we'll see you next time.